Hi guys, and thanks for tuning in to the God Besotted Podcast. It's Karina here, and we're diving back into our series on the attributes of God. This episode is a good reminder of how deeply practical theology is. As we learn about God, we're encouraged in our faith, our souls are nourished, and we're able to view ourselves and the world rightly. So the attribute that we're looking at in this episode is God's wisdom. And we'll see how our God, who Paul calls the only wise God, works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I think it's going to be a good time, so stick around and let's just get right into it. Okay, so at this point in our series on the attributes of God, we've established a few things that scripture affirms about God. We know that God is incomprehensible, which doesn't mean that he can't be understood, but that he cannot be fully understood by us. And yet he is knowable. He reveals himself to his creation. And we know that God is self-existent and self-sufficient, meaning that he has life in himself and he depends on nothing and no one else. He simply is. We also saw that God is immutable. He's unchanging in his being, his perfections, and his purposes, and we can trust him. In the last episode, we talked about how God knows all things, even the future. He is omniscient, as theologians call it. For the moment, we'll take for granted that God is also omnipotent, meaning that he's all-powerful, even though we haven't looked at that in scripture yet. So ponder with me for a moment. If we served a God who was all these things we just affirmed about him, who was all-knowing and all-powerful, yet was not breathtakingly benevolent and heart-stoppingly good, imagine how much we would have to fear. If God was this way, we couldn't be sure that a God who knows everything about us, down to the words we'll speak before we say them, and a God who has all the power possible to punish us or taunt us, wouldn't just strike us down dead on the spot. Or if we served a God who knew all things but couldn't make sense of his knowledge to decide on a plan to accomplish his ends, even if he loved us, even if he was good, We couldn't be sure that he could ensure we are taken care of. So even with all his power and all his knowledge, if God didn't have the ability to skillfully work all the events of history together in a good design, he wouldn't be trustworthy. And this is where the wisdom of God comes in. As we'll see in this episode, wisdom is not just skill, it's ethical in connotation. That is, for something to be wise, it must also be pure, loving, and good. Without wisdom, God couldn't have conceived of the plan to redeem his creation, a plan which scripture shows us is so wise that even angels long to understand it, and the heavenly powers will spend all the ages to come simply marveling at it. God's wisdom is one of the essential parts of his nature by which he created the world, redeemed all those who put their faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and by which he ensures that everything in our lives, even the things which are too painful to speak about and too ugly to bring into the light, by his wisdom, God ensures that everything, everything 
works together for good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So that's where we're going. We're going to look at this attribute of God, the wisdom of God in three points. And the first point is very, very straightforward. It simply is God is wise. We know that he's wise from scripture, scripture which gives us specific revelation about God that we couldn't get from the creation, affirms that God is wise in heart in Job 9.4. Job 12.13 says, with God are wisdom and might. And in Romans 16.27, God is called the only wise God. And this is a passage that we'll come back to later. But first, what is wisdom? We need to define wisdom in order to move forward in this discussion. There are quite a few words used for wisdom in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word that's most common is hakmah, which is used over 300 times, and it has a variety of meanings. It can mean skill, and it can even mean military prowess. But generally, Based on the way it's used most often, it can be defined as the art of reaching one's end by the use of the right means. I love that definition. In the same way, the Greek uses two separate words for wisdom, most commonly the word Sophia, and we can apply the same definition to that. It's the art of reaching one's end by the use of the right means. Now, importantly, in the Bible, wisdom is not merely intellectual, it is moral. That is, wisdom is ethical or has strong moral connotations. So wisdom, although it involves skill, is not just shrewdness, or someone could be wise yet cruel in the sense of the word cunning. Rather, wisdom, as Tozer puts it, is conceived as being pure, loving, and good. So in the Bible, that is how wisdom is used. For example, in Proverbs 4.11, the wisdom teacher says, I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. In this verse, way of wisdom and paths of uprightness are synonymous. In the same way, in James uh, chapter 3, ver verses 13 through 18, the apostle James defines wisdom from above, that is godly wisdom, true wisdom, as being pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Notice then that wisdom is not just doing something well, but doing something in the best, most pure, most benevolent way to then achieve the best result. So J.I. Packer puts it this way in Knowing God, wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. Wisdom, he says, is in fact the practical side of moral goodness. As such, it is found in its fullness only in God. He alone is naturally and entirely and invariably wise. So wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. When it comes to God's wisdom, we can define it this way. Wayne Grudem says God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. Very simple. And MacArthur adds that God's wisdom is his perfect knowledge of how to act skillfully so that he will accomplish all his good pleasure to glorify himself. 
So we've covered that the Bible shows us that God is wise. He is called the only wise God. And his wisdom means that he has the skill to achieve his ends, which is ultimately to glorify himself using the best possible means. So God's wisdom is how he takes all his knowledge and all his power and all his goodness and applies them to accomplish his purposes. So next, now that we've seen that God is wise, we'll look at what purposes God has accomplished by his wisdom and how Jesus embodies true wisdom. So the second point is also very simple. It's simply God does everything well. Now, I'm not sure what you learned in school about how the world came into existence, but you've probably heard different views about the origin of the universe over the course of your life. How did we get here? How did it all start? Some would say a big bang and then millions of years passed and the rest's history. And some would say God. This side of the debate, the God side, is usually called intelligent design. And I mention this because a popular argument for the existence of God has always been intelligent design. All this vast universe had to have a creator and not some force and not some blob of chemicals, but an intelligent someone who intentionally crafted it all. And the reason that people argue for the existence of God by pointing to everything in creation that suggests an intelligent designer behind it is because God's creation puts his wisdom on full display. We saw that the word for wisdom, it communicates the art of reaching one's end by the use of the right means. The intricacy The vastness, the beauty, and the order in the creation shows us a God who is talented, who is skillful, and who is good and benevolent. That encapsulates the biblical word for wisdom. And that's why over and over again in scripture, we see God's wisdom being credited as the tool by which he created the world. Psalm 104, 24 says, O Lord, how many are your works in wisdom? You have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. Psalm 136.5, my Bible translates the word for wisdom as skill, showing how that word informs our understanding of the word wisdom. It involves skill. It involves talent. It says, to him who made the heavens with skill, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Jeremiah 10.12 says, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding. He has stretched out the heavens. And the last one we'll look at, Proverbs 3.19 says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. As God created the world, day by day, element by element, do you remember what scripture tells us his reaction was? How did he evaluate what he had made? The repeated refrain in the creation account in Genesis 1 is that when God saw what he had made, he saw that it was good. And on the sixth day, after the man and woman were created, scripture says God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So that brings us to us, humankind. We've said that God's wisdom is his ability to achieve his desired end through the best means. And we said that his goal is his own glory. Well, the amazing thing that scripture reveals to us is that God has decided in his wisdom, that he will be most glorified 
through our enjoyment of him. Now, once the first man and the first woman sinned in the garden and humanity was then tainted by sin and all creation began groaning under the effects of sin, marred by sin, our enjoyment of God became impossible. Apart from Christ, we don't want to magnify the worth of God. We don't want to do what we did in the garden, which is bring glory to God and and magnify him. Instead, we want to magnify our own worth. We want to be like him and usurp his position. We don't want to say, look at God. Now, because of sin, we want to say, look at me. And when we look at creation, we don't say, wow, look at God. Instead, we look at creation and we say, look, it's God. That is the tragic and hopeless state of any person and every person who has not been born again by the Holy Spirit. That's what scripture tells us. But despite this turn of events, despite what happened in the garden, God had a plan not to abandon the creation he made. Scripture tells us that he chose, before the world was even founded, by his wisdom, he chose to redeem it, to make it new. And the way that he chose to do it is nonetheless remarkable. It's even laughable to those who can't see how wise and how good it is. God chose to use a homely man, an ordinary man, born of a virgin, nailed to a cross like a common criminal. And so it's not only creation that reveals God's wisdom to us, but also the recreation of the world, the redemption of the world that shows us that he is the only wise God. An important passage to illustrate this is Ephesians 3, 9 through 11. In that passage, after Paul has been talking about the unity of the church and how God through Christ has brought together both Jews and Gentiles under one banner of salvation, under one banner of the people of God, Paul says, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. He says it's his gift of grace that he gets to proclaim to the nations that Christ is the way of salvation. And he says it is the gift of grace given to him to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. In the New Testament, a mystery is not something that is hard to understand or know, but something that was previously hidden, but now is revealed. Paul is saying that it was given to him to reveal the mystery, which for ages had been hidden in God who created all things. Before he even created, God had a plan to redeem. And Paul says that his plan to roll out this redemption and show it in all of its glory in Christ at the right moment in history, Paul says this was so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And he says this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which God carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's so much to unpack, unpack in just those couple of verses, but the important points are these. God planned before the foundation of the world to redeem it. And Paul says that it was his manifold wisdom that allowed him to do so. Manifold being, that word literally means it is marked with a great variety of colors. It's varied. It's variegated. And so 
God's plan, his eternal purpose was to reveal through Christ a God-man who came to earth as apparently only a man to redeem mankind. God did that so that his many-colored wisdom would be made known through the church to who? To the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. God has been planning from day one, since before day one, to unfold a dramatic, amazing, remarkable plan of salvation so that his many-colored wisdom would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This plan that he has rolled out, that he has revealed, a mystery that was previously unknown but now has been revealed, it's foolishness to people who can't understand it, to people who can't see the wisdom of God in his redemption through Christ. It's foolishness, but to those who can see it, it is the wisdom of God. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. He tells the Corinthians that the word of the cross, the gospel, which is that a God-man died on a cross for the sins of the world, this gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who can't see it. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And Paul continues, for it is written, and this is a quote from the Old Testament. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Paul is saying that there is a difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And God's wisdom so far surpasses the wisdom of the world that those who consider the, themselves worldly wise can't even understand, can't even grasp the beauty and the wisdom of the gospel and the message of the cross. But to those who are being saved, this message of the cross, which supposedly shows weakness and silliness, and unfathomable uh, foolishness to the world, this message of the cross is actually the power of God and the wisdom of God to those who are being saved. And he says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then Paul says something that should humble all of us. Paul says, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. That is, there weren't many wise in a worldly way, in a human way of speaking. There weren't many that the world would consider wise, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, that he may nullify the things that are, so that, so that no man may boast before God. No one can come before God and say, I was called because I was wise. I was called because I was mighty. I was called because I was noble. Instead, God has chosen the things that are weak, the things that are so-called foolish, the things that are base and despised in the world. And so Paul concludes in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By nothing you did, 
by his doing, God's choice, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This brings us to Jesus. Jesus is wisdom personified. He is true wisdom. In the passage we just read in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul calls Christ the wisdom of God. And scripture affirms this elsewhere. We're just going to look at one example, but this is really all over the Bible. But we're going to look at briefly Proverbs 8. And in that passage, Solomon personifies wisdom as a woman. A woman calling out, inviting people to listen, to heed, to obey. And much of what that passage says about wisdom, or what wisdom says about itself in that passage, applies to Jesus. For example, verse 22 says, The Lord possessed me, that is wisdom, at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. The word possessed in this passage can be translated created or gave birth. But far from meaning that Jesus is a created being, the passage is anticipating what we learn in the New Testament, that Jesus is the firstborn of creation. That means that he has supremacy over all of God's people and all that God has created. He is God's firstborn son. In Proverbs, wisdom was with God in the beginning. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. And we learn from the New Testament that Jesus was with God because he is God in John 1, for example. And then in verses 23 through 26 of Proverbs, wisdom says she existed before the creation of the world. And again, in the New Testament, we learn that Jesus was with God before the world was. In John 17, he prays, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. And John 1 says that Jesus, the Word, was in the beginning with God. But Proverbs 8 says not only did wisdom exist before creation, but she assisted in creating the world, which is pointing us to Jesus, who we learn in the New Testament, the world was created through Colossians 1.15 says the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. And John 1.3 says all things came into being through him, the Word. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And there's so much more where this came from. Jesus really is, as Paul says, the wisdom of God. In Mark 7, we'll wrap up this thought with this passage. In Mark 7, Jesus heals a man who is deaf and mute. And the crowd was so astonished. And they said, he has done all things well. This is an echo of Genesis 1.31 that we referenced earlier. The passage that says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Jesus does all things well. God, the triune God, does all things well because he is the only wise God. And so that brings us to our third point. God stores up wisdom for his people. God's wisdom is what has been called a communicable attribute. Up to this point, we haven't talked about the various ways that theologians categorize the attributes of God. They use different systems to identify categories for 
his attributes. These categories include natural versus moral, goodness versus greatness, and one of the categories, the one that I prefer, is communicable versus incommunicable. And basically, an incommunicable attribute would be something that is less shared with us. I don't like to say that it's not shared because to a certain extent, being made in the image of God, we do share God's attributes. We do partake in his divine nature. So for example, God's self-existence, we don't share that attribute in any sense in its fullness. We can't exist on our own. We are completely dependent on him. And yet we do have some independence and we do exist. So communicable attributes are those attributes that are more shared by us. So as people who are made in God's image, we have the capacity to grow in wisdom because he is a wise God. So we also have the capacity to grow in the art of reading reaching our ends by the use of the right means. But remember, the wisdom, it has moral connotations. So for us as humans, wisdom is the skill of godly living, or it's the skill of living a life pleasing to God, as Wayne Grudem puts it. The question is, of course, how do we grow in wisdom? How do we become wise? How do we live our lives in a way that's pleasing to God? Well, thankfully, Scripture tells us that God is the one who gives wisdom generously to his people. In James 1.5, it says, If anyone lacks in wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. God gives above and beyond the amount of wisdom we need to live a life that's pleasing to him. And he gives it to us without blame, without reproach. And Proverbs 2.7 says that God has stored up wisdom for the upright. We've talked about how God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Well, God is also what theologians have called omnisapient. It means that he has all wisdom or infinite wisdom. And so out of this store, these storehouses of wisdom, God has prepared all of the information and the skill we need to live a life that's pleasing to him. So wisdom starts with God. It's his gift to us. The first time that we see wisdom used about humans in the Bible is when God says that he will give exceeding amounts of skill to certain artisans to build the tabernacle. And then later we see Solomon who is able to ask God for anything he could want and God would give him that desire and Solomon asks for wisdom and receives it along with riches and a long life. And Daniel, who was a prophet, received his wisdom to go from God, who scripture says revealed secrets to Daniel. And in James, we learn that true wisdom comes down from above. So wisdom starts with God. But how exactly does God give us wisdom? Does he speak in a voice from heaven? Does he put us in a trance? Does he give us a manual telling us what to wear today and when to have lunch? Well, some of us might appreciate that, including me, since I don't know how to meal plan. But the primary way that God gives us wisdom is through his word by his spirit. Psalm 19, which we've talked about on the podcast before, the second half of it is dedicated to praise of the word of God and all the reasons why the word of God is such a benefit to believers. And one of the things that the psalmist says is that the word of God makes wise the simple. 
in Psalm 119, which also focuses heavily on the benefits and rewards and blessings of the Word of God, verses 98 through 100 say, Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. The psalmist says that he has become wiser than those who oppose him, than those who have taught him, and than those who have lived longer than him simply because he has eaten up and digested and meditated on and obeyed the word of God. In 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul tells his protege, Timothy, from childhood you have known the sacred writings, the scriptures, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. When faith is paired with the Word of God, when you are reading the Word of God from a perspective of faith in Christ, and you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit as you read, who is illuminating the Word for you, then that Word gives you wisdom. That passage highlights the first thing that we need to get the wisdom that leads to salvation or the wisdom for salvation. The first thing we need to become wise is fear. Psalm 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. And Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So since we're talking about getting wisdom, growing in wisdom after the manner of the Lord Jesus who personifies true wisdom and God who has this wisdom as a perfect attribute, what does it mean to fear the Lord? If the fear of the Lord is how we get wise, what does it mean to fear him? Fear in the Bible refers to where you put your trust. I found this quote from a commentary I like and I want to read it to get us closer to the idea that's involved here. It says, with the Lord as the object, this word, fear, captures both aspects of shrinking back in fear and of drawing close in awe. It is not a trembling dread that paralyzes action, but neither is it a polite reverence. The fear of the Lord ultimately expresses reverential submission to the Lord's will and thus characterizes a true worshiper. I love how delicate this explanation of the fear of the Lord is because it's common today for the fear of the Lord to be sort of explained away as merely respect. You shouldn't fear God, people will say, and then they'll have scripture to back it up. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Perfect love casts out fear. And it's true, you never need to fear condemnation from God if you're in Christ. You never need to fear being cast out of God's presence if you are in Christ. Nothing can separate us from Christ's love. No one can bring a charge against us. No accuser can cause God to abandon us ever. But at the same time, think of how people react across the board when they see God in Scripture. They fall on their faces. In the fear of God, there is terror at the transcendent that is intrinsically involved, and there's awe. 
awe, no words, dumbfounded joy that this God, the one who is a consuming fire, the one who created the universe with a word from his mouth, this God, welcomes us into his presence. So to fear God is to throw ourselves upon him in dependence and in submission with no pretense of self-sufficiency. No pretense of self-sufficiency could ever last if we just sat in God's presence and beheld him who sits on the throne, surrounded by the likeness of rainbows and peals of thunder. In the presence of that God, we would not dare disobey, and we wouldn't even want to. That's fear of the Lord. Love, trust, awe, dependence, humility, submission, obedience. So to live wisely, to live well, We have to trust the one who does all things well. He is the one who made everything and called it good. He is the one who has all the information and the means of using that information to truly work all things together for good purposes. Wisdom, when it comes to us as humans, as believers, wisdom involves the skill of surrender. J.I. Packer says it this way, not until we have become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our own littleness, disrupting our own thoughts, and willing to have our minds turned upside down, can divine wisdom become ours. We'll end with the doxology of Romans 16, 25 to 27. It's a song of praise that bursts forth from Paul as he wraps up his crowning theological treatise. And in it, he praises specifically God's wisdom in his divine plan for salvation. Paul says, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. God really is the only wise God. He created the world and is redeeming it by his wisdom through his son, so that we, along with all of redeemed creation, will marvel at this manifold wisdom for ages and ages to come. This God has stored up wisdom for us, his children, and he gives it generously. So as you're walking with him this week, draw near, yet tremble. And ask for wisdom. Ask for the skill of living a life pleasing to God to be developed in you day by day. And trust him. He has the knowledge and the power and the wisdom to work all things together for your good. As Tim Keller has said, if we knew what God knows, we'd ask exactly for what God gives. Thanks for listening to this episode of God Besotted. I hope it encouraged you. And if it did, would you share it with someone or rate it on Spotify and Apple or leave a review on Apple or however you feel led to support. With that, I'll talk to you next week.